Hello again, all of you ravishing raptors out there. We are back for a, another week of a little greener. We missed you last week. We missed each other. Well, at least I did. I missed you, Casey. <laughs> it's good to see you again. Uh, we're, we're back for another week. A Little Greener is a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah. I'm here with Casey. Hey, I guys. You. I missed you, too. Uh, forgive us. This is our first week off in six months from you guys. So Sarah, how was your move? You're in another state now. I'm yes, I'm several states away. I'm living back living in Florida now, which is where I, I, I lived for several years before. I know we have a lot of wonderful listeners here in Florida as well. So thanks friends for listening. Um, the move was actually horrible. Uh, Casey and I haven't really talked about it, but it was just, it was very hectic. It was very fast. The drive was very long. I had some technical difficulties on the drive that made it longer than it should have been. And I was very exhausted by the time that I got here. And then I didn't have internet for a, a few days. So that is why we were not able to come uh, with an episode at all last week, even even just a short one. So apologies for that. But things are better now. I'm settling in, started the job. The place that I'm staying at is wonderful. So a big thank you to uh, a friend of mine who helped, helped me find a place. And uh, uh, so, yeah, things are good now and it's beautiful. We've had beautiful Florida fall weather the past couple of days. So I've been enjoying that. I'm happy to be settling in and happy to be back. What is Florida fall weather like? Like what are this? So I live and have lived in kind of the mid-Atlantic region my whole life, moved to the Midwest where fall is basically the same, um, but Florida, much more kind of a tropical area. So what, what are the signs that it's fall? Yeah. Well, I say that really jokingly because I really, <laughs> I feel like we don't have fall here in Florida, but it just has been beautiful, like low to mid seventies, getting down into Ooh. the sixties at night, just the beautiful, like crystal clear blue sky the past couple of days. So it's just really nice. It's very pleasant. It's not like what you would think about fall in the Midwest where you have that like crisp, you know, chilly air and you can see your breath and the leaves are changing and all of that. We don't, we don't have that, but it has just been bright blue skies, lower humidity and relatively cooler <laughs> in Florida. So it's been lovely. That actually is my question for the week was what are your favorite things that happen in fall? So is this your favorite thing that happens in fall? Do you miss the Midwest fall? I do what? miss the Midwest fall a little bit, but I miss the Midwest fall that feels sort of like this, you know, like the upper 60s, sure. the lower 70s. That I, I feel like we just don't get quite enough of, um, you know, but yeah, when it's a, a bright blue sky, beautiful day. Uh, I do miss things like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't this year because I was just there, but right. yeah, that, when I moved back up to Indiana from Florida, that was one of, I was so excited about fall and to, to just be outside and the leaves crunching and the color change and all of that. And, you know, you start to like people light fires in their fireplaces and you smell the, or do like the, the campfires out back and you can smell that smell and Yes. So nature wise, I would say that is my favorite 
thing. Like I don't like to be cold. We all know this. So once it goes too far, I don't like it anymore. But yeah, these like this first dip into the fall weather, I do enjoy that in terms of nature things. In terms of non-nature things, I also love fall because it means hockey season and the start of college (laughs) basketball season. Uh, And I can find eggnog at the grocery stores. (laughs) Yeah. And we're getting into your favorite season, which is the Christmas season specifically. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's my favorite holiday. I can't in any way, shape or form say that winter is my favorite season, but Christmas is definitely <laughs> my favorite holiday. So what about you? What are your fall favorites? Well, we just reached the point this week where like fall felt like, like an event. Mm-hmm. Um, now I work at a garden center where we do hay rides and stuff. So really it's been like, Halloween for a Mm -hmm. month and a half for me. And I love that. Like, I really do love that season, but I had this moment this week where I looked up and the trees were really in that full bright color leaves on the ground. Like the wind blows a little bit and you see some of those leaves fall down. So it felt like we were almost on this like precipice point where it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, things are happening. Oh, things are about to be different. And I, I love that feeling. I do think maybe I have a little bit, the reason it feels suspenseful to me is there's a little bit of dread because I know we're about to hit winter soon and I know we're going to get darker and all of that, but fall has this excitement about it that I, it's hard to quantify, but I really love the whole leaves changing element, the, the getting sweater weather. I, I like wearing like a nice jeans and a sweater sort of situation, but that the sun is still warm enough on your back that you can like take it off in the afternoon. That's really, I'm, I'm about it right now. I like that too. I just do that all year round. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Sarah, you are doing something that lots of birds are doing right now, which you went South for the winter. And of course you're staying, (laughs) but this week we're going to be talking about migratory birds because Billions of birds across the U.S. and North America are making a long journey to get to warmer areas. And I decided like, oh, this will be an easy one. And wow, I discovered so many fascinating things. So we're going to actually do a two-parter on migratory birds. And today we're just going to kind of learn about them, the basics. And next week we're going to talk about some of the conservation issues that they face and some things that we can do to protect them. So I'm excited to talk to you about it, Sarah. Glad to be back. Yeah, looking forward to it. So stick around, everybody, and we will be right back with a conversation about migratory birds. And we're back with the main portion of our episode talking about migratory birds today. The thing that made me think of this is actually something that just happened over my house right now is very fall thing here uh, in Pennsylvania is Canada geese flying overhead Mm. with that classic honking noise and their flocks, their V-sheep flying. We have a pond in my dad's backyard. So sometimes they'll do a little stop over here and a little pause. They are not happy about my dog living here now. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, and I can't say that I have a particular love of geese, 
but I think it was your mom who requested that we do, what do animals do in the winter time? Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. And, uh, and so we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks, but this was just something that felt like it was worth talking about specifically animals migrating, um, and specifically birds. Cause they do it just about better than anybody else. So I want to thank National Geographic, Audubon Society, and All About Birds for a lot of this information, um, and we'll link in our show notes. There are over 10,000 species of birds worldwide, and at least 40% of them migrate, according to the Audubon Society. And they actually think once we learn more about birds in the tropics, that we will also see some of them migrate. So that is probably on the low end. And in North America, at least half of North American birds migrate, but it might be as high as two thirds that migrate. So Sarah, what is a migratory bird and why are they migrating? So if you think about any animal that migrates, migration is basically a population moving periodically from one region to another, more or less. And so migratory bird obviously is a species of bird that does that regularly. And as much as I will joke about wanting to be migratory because I don't like being cold. So I would migrate to follow the temperature and you might think of that as being why birds migrate. It's probably not really directly why they migrate, but it it plays a factor. I would say uh, the big reasons for birds or any species to migrate has more to do with just the availability of resources, right? So they have to be able to get enough food to support themselves. A lot of times uh, nesting places is going to be a factor as well. So they're going to move in those times of year where they're going to be better able to get those resources in a certain location. Yeah. I think that's, it's a pretty, you're right. We think about it as primarily temperature-based, and that might be a trigger for a lot of the birds Mm -hmm. to start moving. But some of the things that we talked about during the fall of there being leaves changing and falling also goes along with lots of vegetation and food sources going away. So a recent study really hammered down on something that we kind of knew, but now really showed this more concretely, is that birds migrate for energy efficiency. So where can I get food? Um, how can I work as little as possible to get it? And the, the things they have to keep in mind would be things like how much competition is in the area, what food is available to me and how much work would I have to do to get to the food and to regulate my own body temperature as well, because that is an energy cost to birds too. They need to be able to keep themselves warm enough uh, as well. So some of those birds have decided in the evolutionary path that it is worth it to make huge journeys. Some of them thousands and thousands of miles down uh, to spaces where they are going to find more of those food resources and have to work less for the winter time. So Sarah, it's getting closer here. I don't want to actually ask, I was going to ask you about how bird populations change in Florida. And then I'm like, Sarah just got there. She probably <laughs> doesn't know as much. <laughs> not an ornithologist. I don't, I don't Florida. know she's, she's as much. Yeah. I, I, it's a thing I would love to know more about. I know that there are certain like birding hotspots in Florida. So mm-hmm. this is hopefully something that I will grow 
to know more about after being back here. Uh, I'm sure I knew more when I was living here before that has since fallen out of my brain. But yeah, so <laughs> there there are lots of different types of birds at different parts of the, the state. I know, I think like in the Keys in Southern Florida is like a big birding hotspot too, because a lot of times birds will like stop there before journeying on uh, over the water basically but yeah and I, I think around this time of year too is great birding time in Florida because we're starting to see the migratory birds come down from the northern parts of the United States are, are getting here now taking advantage of all that Florida orange juice or whatever other goodies <laughs> you got they don't drink orange juice but some actually birds uh you can help by putting out some fruits but yep. we'll talk about that next episode so different birds there's a uh, lots of birds that live in the U S there's over 600 species that live just here in the U S and even more, if you're counting Canada and Mexico and, and subspecies and all of that kind of stuff, they approach migration or whether or not to migrate in different ways, uh, raptors, which Sarah started us off in our episode with normally migrate during the day, whereas many songbirds migrate at night when there's not as many of those raptors flying around, though they're able to uh, avoid predators that way. And there's a lot of different types of migration. So some birds don't really migrate at all, or at least don't go through any sort of um, large population shift. Uh, they might be nomadic, so they might switch from one habitat to another, depending on food resources, but they're not going through a yearly cycle. Um, so cardinals, doves, chickadees, downy woodpeckers are all birds. Actually I've seen recently, they normally stick around the area here where it gets really cold in the winter time. And they're, they've, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so these are great things when you're trying to get your nature time in the winter, if you're living somewhere where it gets cold, those are a few species that you can always keep an eye out for. You can still backyard bird watch even in the winter time. Absolutely. If you have not seen a cardinal in the snow, like that's you're missing out. Sometimes I'm like, uh, birds are cool, but like not the little ones nearby, but cardinals are pretty. They've got the cool mohawk going on. They're so bright red. So pretty. They really stand out in the winter time. Um, some birds migrate short distances. So sometimes actually up and down elevations, if there are species that lives in the mountains, for example, or they just maybe go a couple hundred miles or, or, or shorter than a couple hundred miles would be wax wings and American tree sparrows. Mid-distance migrations occur over a couple hundred miles. And so some birds will, for example, spend the summer in Canada, but then come down to the U.S. for the wintertime where it's a little bit warmer. And then there is long-distance migrations, which are obviously the, the ones that go over many hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles. Birds here in the U.S. will travel down to Central and South America. So uh, many species of geese, swans, orioles, ruby-throated hummingbirds, which are super tiny, make a really big migration. And this is actually accounts for most of the migration in the U.S., which surprised me. I figured most of them would like stick around and then it was only the ones who are really like hardcore who are going down south. But nope, uh, most of the birds actually do choose to leave the states. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Sarah, what would be some dangers of migrating? Like what, what would, if you were a bird who was like consciously migrating, you're, you're a Sarah bird and you're like, Hmm, should I do it or not? What are the trade-offs that you have to think about? We all know I wouldn't do it because <laughs> of my risk aversion and yes. my flight <laughs> fears. Uh, although I suppose if I was a bird, I 
hopefully wouldn't be afraid of flying. Anyway, so lots of things, lots of potential dangers to migratory birds. There's the natural things. To me, it's incredible anyway that birds do this with these little, little tiny birds making these huge journeys. So you think about like severe weather events and things like that, that might just be natural threats to them. But really anything else, you know, we've, we've talked about birds previously on this podcast. We have a, a bird watching episode that Casey did that was wonderful. But any threat that is going to be a threat to the birds in your backyard is a threat to migratory birds. So you think about things like habitat loss. It's not just the habitat that they're flying from and flying to, but they are going to need resources all the way down uh, or up on their journey. So anything that we've talked about before, expanding agriculture, cities, even things like power lines, wind turbines, potentially all of these things. Tall buildings can be hazards for birds. So both that's habitat loss and also collision factors from all of these things here. Predators, of course, your natural predators, and then things like cats that we've talked about before, which are not uh, native predators to birds, but cause a huge threat. So all of those things uh, are threats to migratory birds. Yeah. It seems super risky to be like, yep, I'm going to go fly thousands of miles so I can get a little nice summer spot in the tropics. So I was surprised to learn that Cornell did a study and they looked kind of at big bird populations. I think they were looking a little bit more at sort of the biomass of birds going through the sky. I didn't read the study in full, but I saw an article about it um, versus like tracking individual birds. Mm -hmm. But what they found was that birds who stayed in the U.S. over winter, so the non long distance migratory birds had a 35% mortality rate versus the birds migrating to and from the tropics who had a 23% mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So actually, if you're rolling the dice, it is more risky to stay in the U.S. over that winter time when there's less food resources, when it's super cold and you're dealing with all the normal stuff than it is to travel thousands of miles, hoping that you're going to see your little stopover habitat sites just so you can get a nice little paradise for the winter time. So I was super surprised by that. Well, I mean, it makes sense because I feel like we they wouldn't do it otherwise. Right. Most of them of wouldn't. Ev- right. Evolutionarily <laughs> speaking, uh, even if it was more, but it is so, it, but it is interesting to see the numbers in the study. Yeah. And one of the things the article points out is that this could change over time um, because one of the reasons that they probably have lower mortality rates is there is less suitable habitat now in the U.S. because of urbanization and human development and invasive species like cats and things like that than there is in the tropics where there's more quote unquote pristine habitat. So the things that the birds were originally going for are still there. But they also found out that the, uh, this brings me to a question that I continue to ask over and over again, every time I see a statistic, how are there even birds? Like (laughs) 35% of you die over winter. What is that about? (laughs) How do you sustain a population this way? Um, And we'll see more crazy numbers like that, but basically um, they have, have really high reproductive rates. So the birds come back to the U S to breed in the summer, spring and summertime. And the birds who stay in the U S compensate by having 60 baby birds per a hundred parent birds, which is a decent amount versus 36 baby birds per hundred parent birds for birds who migrate in the tropics. So they do have a higher reproductive rate. I have a question. Are, was this study looking at 
different, this may be a stupid question, looking at different species or were they looking at, because sometimes some populations of the same species of birds will migrate and not, correct? That is correct. So yeah. Were they looking at the same species for these and comparing those numbers or were they looking at some species of birds that migrate and some species of birds that don't? Do you remember? I think they were looking at the aggregate of species. Okay. So I don't think they were comparing those populations, although we'll talk a little bit about reasons why birds actually might stop migrating for some reasons. Um, but yeah, I think this was a little bit bigger. There were some other studies about warblers and stuff where they were like actually looking at more individual birds or smaller populations. This one seemed to be because they talked about like basically satellite data where they ac- accounted for cloud cover and were tracking the birds coming back and forth um, was part of how they they came up with some of these numbers, but I don't know about the reproductive rates, how they came up with those. Making this journey is again, harrowing, crazy. I don't understand it as someone who has a terrible sense of direction. One of the biggest things I don't understand is how they know where to go. So that's something I spent a lot of time researching. Sarah, what do you know about how birds know how, how to get where they're going? (laughs) I know that there are lots of different factors. I don't know much if we know, like if it's different between species, how they navigate, I would think that it probably is, especially like, as you talked about with um, some species migrating during the day versus at night, all of those sorts of things. But it's like, it's unfathomable to me. And I I was reading some of these studies that I know you're going to talk about here too, from the, the all about birds, the Cornell lab of ornithology, which we've talked about before with the Merlin bird ID app, but their website is phenomenal. There's so much info. And so just reading through some of that, I mean, they're talking about how like young birds might have, like, there's some just innate sense of they sort of just generally know where to go. And then once they've migrated for the first time, they like stick to that same area. Like they migrate to and from the same like home range every single year. They think they have like internal compasses sort of, they might use the magnetic fields, which don't understand that at all. Um, But some will use like the positioning of the stars um, or the positioning of the sun they were talking about some birds having like an olfactory map. So actually recognizing the smells as they're flying. I just can't, honestly, like part of the reason that my trip down here went so badly is because my phone died in the car when I was like two hours away from my destination. I would still be in the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew kind of where to go, but I just, once I got close, I didn't know how to find my home range. Basically, I didn't know how to find the specific spot I was going to. Um, But yeah, so without my GPS, you know, telling me exactly where to go, I was I was lost and I like, literally I couldn't do it. I had to stop and get that map back. So to just read about all of these different sort of innate resources that these birds have is completely mind blowing to me. So that was a terrible answer, a terrible way of just saying that they have lots of different things (laughs) that kind of all work in combo and we're still learning about it. I, I think using the word unfathomable is the right word because looking through even just the way that they're like, this is a website for kids. And this is how we explain it to kids. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. (laughs) We don't, I don't think we have the language 
for a lot of how these birds navigate. So some things are, are kind of easy. Birds seem to recognize landmarks. So you're a bird, you're like, cool, we're flying through the Appalachian mountains. I can tell because I see the mountains. Mm-hmm. Great. They're going to see these landmarks. They're going to use these to navigate. But then you have things like on National Geographic's website, sorry to drag in National Geographic, but you put the phrase, they imprint on the sun (laughs) on your website. So I'm like, if you don't know what imprinting means, it basically means like seeing something as a parental figure is generally like a role model, like forming an attachment to something that then, and, and when you're on this website, you can hover over the word imprinting. And I thought it was going to link me to a new article, but instead it was like, here's what the definition is. Mm -hmm. And that's the definition they gave was like, they see it as a parent. And I'm like, okay, so birds don't see the sun as a parent. Correct. Like that's not, can't be what you mean, but I don't understand. I will say, I think that all about birds used that phrase too, to talk about like what I was saying with young birds, like once that, once they've been to their destination. So it's talking about how they, they sort of know the direction they're supposed to go and how far to go, but they don't have a specific goal in mind. It does say then after it arrives at its wintering grounds. It selects a home range to which it imprints that during is, the winter. See that, that makes sense to a certain extent because yeah. it, it, it is saying like, this is mine now. I yes. understand. Yeah. Which does not make so much sense with the sun. I, yes, right. I like imagine <laughs> like, you know, you're in your hometown. Eventually you're almost imprinted on your hometown in that you have a mental map of where mm-hmm. you're at. You're probably going to be pretty good at getting to certain things. You probably use visual landmarks to help you navigate around. But yes, after that, they talk about like, they have you somewhere connected to the visual visual processing center. They have a cluster of cells called a cluster N, which interacts with that visual system and helps them understand North. And they also say they have tiny amounts of iron in the cells of the (laughs) bird's inner ear also maybe helps with North. (laughs) So maybe a literal compass, maybe not. I, I'm sure an ornithologist could tell us more. My brain, my brain can't handle it. No. Um, Like you pointed out, they have an olfactory system. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead and finish your thought. I'm looking ahead. (laughs) Um, We have an olfactory system. So uh, that's your smell and your taste. And they think that the birds use that map. Yeah. I can smell the pine trees. We're close here. Oh, I smell the citrus fruits. That's what we're going for. And there's also a nerve in their beak that might have sensitivity to the earth's magnetic field as well. Yeah. Um, still crazy. It's, it is. I mean, when you start to break it down though, like I reading through this, I am just like, uh, my, how do they do this? But we do the same things. We just don't, I feel like we don't have the innate that they have like sure. built-in things but we do you know even thinking about olfactory you know we've probably all dri- like I don't know driving by the ethanol plant which is not a positive <laughs> example but you know like that I that could orient me into what part of town I'm you know so we do those things too you know I had no idea where I was going uh, on my drive back down here but now I can get to and from my home and my work without any 
map, you know, because I remember, oh yeah, there's the, the stoplight that I, you know, so we do these same things. It's just to be able to do it that first time, especially with no other resources and to just sort of have this built in sense of direction, I think is what's so mind. And they're not using roads. They're not, you know, they have the freedom to go anywhere and they figure out how to do it. It's just, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not like, am I going north or south on Route 100? Right. Oop, I got to turn around. It's like, oh, literally, I can go anywhere because I'm Mm -hmm. flying above everything. And the thing that we haven't said out loud yet is that um, parents don't take birds migrating. That's they leave the nest prior to migration. Typically there's some evidence. I saw that like ducks and geese recognize their parents. So they're flying as a flock. They might get a little bit of help from parents and geese apparently remember their parents, at least Canada geese, um, into adulthood, which most birds don't. So that's really interesting. Sweet. It is sweet. It made me like them like a smidge more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, they're using all these cues in the same way that we are talking about like visual elements of fall, the smells of fall, the sounds of fall. These guys are, are using all of those similar things. It's just, it's so much more sophisticated than anything that we have. And the, what we have that they don't, is a complex language. So Sarah could, if her phone hadn't died, called mom and mom could have been like, Oh, I've been there. And, and, uh, this is how you get here. But birds are really like doing this by themselves. A crazy thing that I started looking into is how we figure any of this out. Yes. Um, (laughs) I read through these studies too. This is what I was starting to jump to. Like it's, reading some of the things that they did uh during these studies was a little bit uh made me a little bit uh uncomfortable but but also I can't help but be even more mind blown to to see kind of the results and how the birds figured things out yeah I call this section um being real rude to birds aka birds are smarter than you so these are the times yeah (laughs) That 100% sums up my feelings. <laughs> I kept being like, these poor birds. <laughs> this would not be ethical if you were a bird, but we just got to figure things out sometimes. So um, these are fascinating studies to me um, when we failed to trick birds, basically. <laughs> we tried to trick them. We were not successful. So in two studies, they kidnapped birds. They don't use that language. They're like, oh, we captured birds from one location and flew them. No, they kidnapped them out of their nesting sites, specifically uh, for Manx shearwaters, which are native to the UK. They were in their nesting sites and the scientists took them out, kidnapped them, separated them into two different populations um, and sent them elsewhere. Uh, and they wanted to see if they could get back home. So they normally go in the UK. They are migratory. They normally only migrate over water. They took one of the, one of the groups to Boston, Massachusetts, (laughs) and they took the other group out to Venice, Italy. And so totally opposite directions. You imagine? I know. (laughs) Like imagine. they (laughs) They did. They got back. They got back. Two weeks. I'm sure fairly like confused. And if they knew anything about what was going on, very spiteful. (laughs) Like we better hope birds are not as smart as we are. or They're going to get us with a vengeance one day. You wake up in a new place and there's like an ostrich looking over you. It's the bird. Oh, don't. Oh, God. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm, I already find them terrifying. Yeah, that was too much of a nightmarish bird. But like, a like yeah, a Manx water hanging out yeah. on your windowsill being like, see how it feels. You get back. <laughs> I feel like I can't. My phone's not here. My <laughs> GPS is dead. Um, so yeah, we did that twice too. Like it wasn't just them. They did it to another group of birds in California and yeah, they took them all over the place and they were able to get back to the same quarter acre. Like these Manx waters got back right to their nesting burrows and we're like, oh, whatever I if I'm late now. <laughs> um, another study that I found was worth noting is a study on homing pigeons. And so they were like, <laughs> okay, we know magnetic fields have to do with it, like visual markers. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a pigeon. We're going to put it in a box. And they transported the pigeons in boxes where they turned the lights on and off at random times to mess with their circadian rhythm. So they weren't sure, like they couldn't just be like, the sun was here and now it's there. And that's how I know, like, nope, it's all um, back and forth. They played loud white noise so that they weren't getting any audio cues. They had them on bottled air, which means that they basically weren't smelling anything. It was all stuff that was brought in. And then they put machines next to the boxes that changed the earth's magnetic field around them so that they also couldn't use that. Hey, Very they good. did it. <laughs> they did it. They did oh, it. Uh, the last thing also <laughs> that they did is they, they took the boxes and they were like, let's shake it up a little bit. Let's turn it around. We're going to tilt it. They didn't like shake the birds, but they like tilted them. They put them on a little machine that like basically like tilted them in different directions. So they couldn't be like, I knew we flew one direction West. And they said, other than feeling a little nauseous, the pigeons still flew home without a problem. They just like this one really, first of all, I don't know if that's how you put it or that's how they put it other than feeling a little nauseous, but that made me laugh except those poor birds. Um, but like, really, how did they do it? How did they do it? Is it just a matter of once they get released, they reorient to whatever it is, you know, like they reorient to the magnetic yes. fields, they reorient to the rotation of the stars or whatever it is that, that they're following. It's just like, I mean, they, they took away every sense as they were moving these birds around. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously once they're in their new location, they get all of the information back, but they lost everything that would have told them how they got there. So yes, we, right. This proves to us that they have some sort of idea of how the earth is laid out. Um, and I think the things that you brought up, which I call this section, those times we successfully tricked the birds and we've figured out some tiny components to it. Um, so one of the early studies is a scientist put a blanket over a cage with birds who are showing migratory restlessness. So um, we see this anytime that these birds are in a human care situation where they're not able to successfully complete their migratory uh, journey and they have all their resources, even though they've got their resources, they still have this innate like restlessness where you'll see them hopping in one direction. So he, uh, he was like, okay, these birds are all hopping in one direction. I think they were crows. And then he put a blanket over it and he's like, ah, they're still hopping in the same direction. But when he put a magnetic, that machine that switches up the magnetic charge, he was able to change their sense of direction and they moved in the other way. Mm -hmm. So that's crazy to me. I mean, um, we're talking about birds right now, but turtles also have some of these similar things where you can like pick them up and put them down like five miles away. And they're like, gotta get back home. You know, like <laughs> they're just <laughs> figure it out. 
Um, then there was a German couple who went hardcore and they raised chicks in a planetarium. I loved this one. It's so crazy. They raised them inside. And yeah, I mean, think about baby birds. They are looking up a lot. Like when they're getting fed, they're looking up like all of this. Yes. The sun and the positioning of the stars do seem to have some sort of impact on them because the ones that had, I think proper orientation, when they released them outside, they knew where they were going. Um, but when they changed the orientation of North. So basically they had them, uh, had the planetarium rotate around the star Betelgeuse instead of the North star. They successfully tricked the birds, which is cool. I mean, it's so cool. So cool. So cool. And, and humans have used stars as well in Mm -hmm. navigation, indigenous folks. Um, obviously there's very famous stories from when enslaved people were trying to escape North. They used the path of the stars because they also didn't have a GPS, right? They didn't have formal maps that would have given them away. So humans have the ability to do this, but like baby bird within their first year is able to figure this out enough that, uh, that they're able to add that to their sense of direction. So so crazy. Um, an article in, also in, in National Geographic said birds have an internal GPS, which I think means like they have a really good understanding that mental map that we think of, but all, uh, first of all, magic, because <laughs> I, I, I don't understand it at all. Like I'm so bad directionally. And two, it makes me imagine that the birds have like a tiny little Garmin voice in their head. That's like, you know, turn left at the mountain, tweet, tweet. <laughs> But, uh, but, but they say it as if it's like a very self-explanatory, like birds just have an internal global positioning system. Like, but that might be the best way we have to describe it right now. I feel like it is because I mean, I just feel like that is the sum up of all of these parts and pieces. That's really what it's saying is that these birds are able to process all of this different information from different places. And it tells them where they are at on the planet and where they need to get to crazy. Amazing. Amazing. Nature's amazing. Again, a good time to think about how other species have senses that we just can't even process in our brains. So the hierarchy is not as clear as you might think just because we have language and, and physical GPSs. We don't have them in our brains. And as you mentioned earlier, Sarah, migration is a flexible trait, which means that not all quote unquote migratory birds need to migrate if there is a abundant food resources where they live. So we see this on a kind of a smaller level too, with uh, species across different taxa. If you have enough resources in an area, they will have smaller home ranges. Often they won't need to travel as far. Um, we see that with tigers, for example, tigers that live up in Northern Russia have way bigger home ranges than those that live in India. And that's just, they can't find as much food. The food is not as dense. So that is just a a kind of flexible trade across the species because we need to figure out how, how much space they actually need to get what they need. Um, so Canada geese, if you live a lot around a lot of golf courses, for example, you might find Canada geese throughout the year, even though they are kind of that quintessential migratory bird I think of in our area, because I hear them all the time, but they're here almost year round at this point. Um, another example is a barn swallow. They normally migrate north uh, from North America down to Argentina, but a population of migratory 
dropouts uh, <laughs> live under a bridge there. That's what they call them, migratory dropouts. I love it. Um, they live in a bridge and are just like, we're Argentinian now. We're not doing that. And they live in residence in the area and they've actually flipped their breeding season. So normally they would breed in spring and summer, but obviously when you go down to the Southern hemisphere, your season mm-hmm. switch. So they have successfully switched over to the breeding season down in South America. Which That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, other species like white storks, think of like carrying the baby, European white storks. Sorry. That's the best they, pop. They culture. don't really do that. Guys. They don't actually do that. And they're not migrating from some secret baby mountain or anything, but, um, they used to migrate all the time, but in areas where they can find food, especially around like landfills and stuff, they will hang out there, um, instead of traveling and some migratory dropouts can result in a new species over time. So recent genetic data shows that the Galapagos hawk is most closely related to the migratory Swainson's hawk, which is found in North America and normally then goes down to South America to breed. But they think that the ancestors of the Galapagos hawk were likely blown off course landed in the Galapagos and we're like, I guess we live here now. (laughs) Yeah, There's resources. And so over this time, they've become their own species. You can definitely see the similarities when you look at different pictures of them, but there's also significant differences. And so this is, again, once a species gets separated from its main population over a certain amount of time, they develop such different traits, both genetically and just behaviorally that they are a new species. So I thought that was really interesting. This was my portion of the episode that was kind of the basics of migratory birds. And we're going to get a little bit more into some of the complications and minutiae of what these birds experience while migrating and uh, some of the challenges they face and how we're trying to solve them and how you can help. Sarah, do you have anything else that you want to add? No, I, but I, thanks for the discussion, Casey. We can all take this next week to be appropriately mind blown by birds and how these, again, like, I think if you've ever been up close to a bird, I mean, yeah, so you got your Canada geese and whatever that are a little bigger and sturdier, if you will. Uh, But I mean, a lot of these bird species that are making these migrations, these are small, light, fragile, like they have hollow bones. They have <laughs> hollow bones. Just for them to physically be able to make the journey is impressive enough to me. Uh, but then to think about how they're able to do it, I just so yeah, we can all take this week to to process the amazingness of migratory birds and um, dive even deeper next week. Yeah, we're gonna uh, have a take home action in just a moment. Stick around. All right, guys, we are back for the last portion of our episode, which is our challenge for the week. And I think Sarah started off great. Be properly mind blown by birds, please. Like think about them for a little bit and how cool they are, (laughs) but you can spend time outside listening to birds. No matter where you live, there is almost definitely resident birds around you. Birds are one of those animals that are found everywhere, including Antarctica. That's normally like our caveat for species. Like you can find them everywhere except for Antarctica. No, you got (laughs) birds around you. Um, And most likely you have some resident birds that live in your area and are non-migratory. And even if the migratory birds have left, 
you might be, uh, still hearing the bird calls today. So Andrew and I went through for a walk and we were listening and I was like, oh, these are the guys who are going to be around a little bit longer because at my latitude, everybody's mostly left already. Yeah. But you can also check and see where you're at, depending. I mean, we're probably pretty late in the game, I would guess in terms of migratory season, but depending on where you're at, where you live. Yeah. They're still going down through like Texas and Florida and Mexico. So see what you've got. Yeah. Your challenge mode is trying to identify these birds by their call. And then maybe in late spring, we can do a similar challenge and you can see how that kind of field of voices has changed as the migratory birds start coming back to this area. I'm excited for this because, you know, I was trying to be attentive to birds when I was living up north and it is a whole different ballgame. I mean, some of them are going to be the same for sure. Like I, I know that there will be a lot of the common backyard birds that I can identify, but there's a lot more down here that I'm going to have to learn to both visually ID and definitely by their calls as well. So I'm excited for this challenge. Yeah. And some of you might end up being in an area where a lot of these tropical birds are headed to, or maybe you have a larger population of resident birds, but I think it'd be cool to, to try and see the differences. If you're in the same place come springtime, who's here, who's not, and, and try and spot them too. But if you can listen for them, I think that was really relaxing for me today. So I, I wish you all a very relaxing spending time in nature week, even as we get into fall. Well, thanks Casey again for a great discussion. Birds, man. Birds, man. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed the episode and you want to let us know, you can feel free to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are also always happy to hear from you if you have questions, comments, thoughts, feedback, suggestions, all of the things. And you can reach out to us over the social medias, uh, Facebook, uh, a little greener podcast. We are on Instagram at a little greener pod, and you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. And we will respond. If you have questions, we will share uh, on, uh, on the next podcast episode. If you have things to add, we just love to hear from you. So let us know, feel free to reach out. And thanks for listening. We're glad to be back, guys. We'll see. Well, oh man, every time (laughs) you'll hear us next week on another episode of A Little Greener, where we'll talk more about birds. Bye. Bye.